I think I'm switched on. Am I switched on? Happy New Year to everyone. And yes, I am wearing a jacket two weeks in a row. (laughs) But I've worked out I can still do that and only wear it once a year. Because last week was 2017. Well, in the next three weeks, we're looking together as a church as we begin the year, focusing on our themes of community, mission, and discipleship. And today, we're especially looking at community, although the passage we're going to look at also hints at mission and discipleship. But our focus today is community, and we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, and we're looking at building the body of Christ. So if you need a church Bible, please raise your hand and Phil will deliver them very expertly. Um, I won't take the time now to read through the whole passage, but we'll read together as we go through it. I don't know if you uh, particularly like walking, but one of the things I miss about not living in Spain is being able to walk in the mountains, because even though for most British people Spain is just a seaside destination, it's actually one of the most mountainous countries in Europe. And living in Granada, we were right next to a very big mountain range where the peaks go up to uh, more than 3,000 meters. But the great thing is in summer, because it's so hot there, most of the snow's gone. So you can take a hike up there in your trainers if you want. But if you want to go for a proper expedition, you don't really need any kind of special equipment. And some of the friends I had there, we would try and go every summer and take a bit of an expedition up in the mountains and do different routes there. And even though you kind of get the feeling it's not dangerous because it's sunny and not that freezing or anything, it's still the mountains and you still have to be careful. And I remember on one of our expeditions, we were hiking along at our usual steady, very slow pace, and we came across a a couple, a husband and wife or partner, I don't know what they were, but the woman was lying down with her leg in the air, obviously in a lot of pain and couldn't move. And the husband was looking, as you'd expect him, very grumpy and annoyed, the fact that his wife had ruined their expedition. And we sort of said, well, we'll we'll be good, you know, hikers. And we went over and said, you know, do you need anything, water, food? And the guy kind of brushed us off and started moaning about the fact that the rescue helicopter hadn't showed up. Because, of course, at 3,000 meters and miles from the nearest help, you can't really hop out of the mountains. So he'd called the rescue helicopter. And after being brushed off by him, we thought, well, we'll... We could hear the helicopter circling around trying to find it, and eventually we could see it. So we thought we'd sit down a little way away and watch the spectacle, because we thought, you know, we've never seen somebody rescued in the mountains. And as we sat there, sure enough, the helicopter buzzed around for a while, eventually found somewhere to land, and the crew got out, ran over to the woman, sorted her out, strapped her into the stretcher, and took her to the hut to the helicopter with the husband walking along beside. And they got her all settled in, and you can imagine our amusement when the husband tried to get on, And the crew told him in no uncertain terms he was walking home. (laughs) Well, we thought that was brilliant. That made our our whole expedition. But the point was, when you're walking in the mountains, you have to respect the mountains. You have to walk worthily, if you like, of the mountains. And Paul begins our passage in verse 1 saying this. Let's see if I can get the clicker going. As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk worthily, of your calling with which you are called. Walk worthily of your calling. Uh, NIV translate that as live a, wor- a life worthy, which in the, in, the, in the Bible, walking is often used as a metaphor for how you live your life, pre-car days and all that. So it's quite a natural way of putting it. 
But what Paul has been doing in the last three chapters, chapter 1 to 3, is, if you like, setting up the mountain views of God's grace, his greatness, and his glory. And in light of that, he's now telling the Ephesians, urging them strongly as a prisoner of the Lord to walk worthily of that calling. And it's worth, I wish we could read all of chapters 1 to 3, but I've just picked out a few phrases to kind of give us a flavor of that calling that we have. Verses 4 to 6 of chapter 1, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. That's our calling to be holy and blameless in his sight, to live to the praise of his glory, glorious grace. He goes on, in him we were also chosen. And he carries on, in order that we who are the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. That's part of our calling. I'm going to skip through these quickly. Sorry, 2, 6 to 7. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. God wants to show his grace in and through us. That's part of our calling, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Carrying on into chapter 3, his intent was that now through what? Through the church, through Abbey, through us sitting here today, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's quite a calling for God's manifold, various, multiplied wisdom to be made known through us, through you and me, in the heavenly realms, not just to the people around us, but to the principalities and powers, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he finishes the chapter right before this appeal to walk worthily, saying, verse 21 of chapter 3, to him be glory, where? In the church, in Abbey church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations that includes us forever and ever that is the calling that Paul is referring to that is what he's asking us to walk worthily of that's quite a task quite a challenge if I could sum it up like this very inadequately the first three chapters our calling is to be God's church through which or through whom his grace and glory are displayed to the whole universe. God has done amazing things for us in Christ Jesus and we are now to be on display of his grace. That's what we're to walk worthily of. So how do we do that? Paul will then go on to tell us, well, it's why walking, you walk worthily by walking in unity. Now at this point, I'm sort of surprised that Paul doesn't straight away start saying, if you're going to walk worthily, that means be holy. That means don't give in to sin. That means do lots of stuff for me. He does go on to say that. In verses 17 onwards and into chapter 5, he gives lots of different instructions about how we're to live in holiness. But his priority at this point is our relationships as a community. How do we walk worthily? Well, we walk worthily by walking with humility and gentleness, by walking with patience, by bearing with one another in love, by working hard at unity. These are not abstract qualities. You can't look at someone coming and say, what a humble guy. 
You just can't. You only know someone's humility by how they treat other people. And that's made very clear in many different passages that we don't have the time to look at. Patient, uh, gentleness is not about being meek and mild as we often sing about Jesus. No, it's about the way we treat one another in gentleness. Patience, it's not losing your temper when you're stuck in traffic. It's how we treat one another. It's how God treats us with patience. We, we sang about it already. He's slow to judge, quick to forgive. He doesn't give up on us. He goes the course with us. And that's what he asks us to do with each other. To not judge, to not give up on people, but to walk the whole course with them patiently. Bearing with one another. It's not just putting up with our eccentricities and annoying things of other people or things we're not quite so keen on. I can remember one of my first mission experiences, as an adult at least, was going with Operation Mobilization when I was a student in the summer. And I spent three weeks in Romania. And while it was a great experience, uh, we were staying with a, a very poor family, stuck all together in their flat, sleeping in all the nooks and di- different crannies. And because I was very humble, I slept on the floor. Um, But what I discovered to my horror was that the team leader who shared the room had the stinkiest shoes and feet you could ever imagine. So there I was sleeping next to him. I had to bear with that in love. But Paul is going much further beyond that. He's talking about how God forbears us, is not quick to judge, puts up because he loves us. It's forbearing with one another in love. That love he has for us enables him to not give up on us. And it's what he wants from each of us to not give up on the other, to, yes, accept the differences. Yes, accept the people we're not quite sure about because we love them, because we want to see them grow. And he's going to major on that idea of all of us growing together. So we have to forbear with one another in love. And that phrase in love is very key for Paul, not just here, but throughout this passage. He uses it three times and he uses it six times in this one letter, working in love. And if you flip back briefly to chapter 3, verse 17, he's, told, he's told the Ephesians he spent time praying for them. What? So that they might be rooted and established in love. This love, he goes on to say, that surpasses all knowledge. Well, if you want to know how much you've understood God's love, just look at how much you love one another and how you treat one another. Do you forbear one another? In love. And he finishes this little bit by saying, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is not a natural thing to us. We are all different. As you look around the room, the one thing that unites us is our faith in Christ and the work of the Spirit in us. But naturally speaking, we would probably not be sitting in the same room together. And that's why we have to work at it. Unity doesn't come naturally. We often fall into the default position of, I'm right, he's upset me, and I'm not going to forgive. I'm not going to talk to them. That's, be, that's why we have to work at it. It's an effort. We sometimes put more effort into standing our ground and proving ourselves right than actually working for this unity that it says is in the spirit and in the bond of peace. Christ, earlier in chapter 2, he said that Christ is our peace and that he won that peace through his death on the cross. Peace with God and peace with others. And when we fail to make every effort to live in unity, we're in a sense 
despising some of what his work was on the cross, which was to bring us that unity. One of the commentators says, unity is not just a nice idea, it's a reality we have to conform to. It's a reality we have to conform to. It's what we've been called to. Just look in chapter 2, the end of verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in his, own, in his one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Christ bought our unity at great price. We can't despise it, and we must make every effort to keep it. But this unity has to have the right foundation, and that's what Paul will do in the next few verses, verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He uses the word one seven times and then finishes it with this phrase, over all, through all, in all, three alls. It's, if you like, he's using the language to give this picture of perfection because seven and three together was the sort of height of the way they use numbers in in the biblical times. So one body, whether you like it or not, we're part of the same body. Jesus does not have lots of different bodies. He only has one and we're members of it. Even the people you may disagree with the most are still members of that one body. One spirit. There are not lots of different Holy Spirits. There's one Holy Spirit dwelling in me, dwelling in you. That is a tremendous basis for unity. We have one hope. We're all hoping that God will take us to be with him for an eternal, to be with him in eternity. That's our hope together. And I don't know if God is perhaps sad or laughs ironically at those Christians who refuse to talk to other Christians even though they're going to spend eternity with each other. I think he's probably sad about it, that the death of Christ on the cross has not worked through enough to let them have fellowship with other Christians. We're going to be spending eternity together. We have that one hope. There's one Lord. We don't worship different lords. We worship God who is one. One faith. We've come to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. We believe in his work on the cross, in his resurrection. That's where our hope is. And we've responded to him in one baptism. It doesn't matter... Really, if you were sprinkled, or if you were dunked, or if it was the bath, or a pool, or a river, it's one baptism. And that's the foundation of our unity. And most of all, we have one God and Father of all. He has made us part of his family. He, we are made in his image. So whether we understand this or not, we have a tremendous basis for our unity. It's sad that Despite this strong basis, so often our own pride gets in the way and we work hard at being divided rather than united. Paul says, no, work hard at making this a reality and he gives us that one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one God and Father of all as our foundation for unity. So Paul begins this passage by appealing to them, to the Ephesians, to walk worthily of their calling. Walking with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being eager to keep this unity we have in the Spirit. And having established our oneness, if you like, he can then go on to talk about building the body where we see diversity. So there's oneness, but there's diversity. 
And that's what he would do in, in, chap- in verses 7 to 16. But if you don't get anything else from this morning, I hope you get the message that this building up of the body only happens as each person plays their part. He opens it by saying, to each one, verse 7, has been given grace as Christ apportioned it. And by grace there, he's not talking so much about our salvation as about the calling and the gifting he gives to each of us. You can see that by the way he uses grace earlier in chapter 3 and what he's going to say that follows. And he ends verse 16 by saying, each part has to do its work. So that's really what he's going to develop in the next part of, of this passage. So let's just look at it briefly together. Verses 7 to 10. To each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. <clears throat> that's why it says, when he ascended on high, <coughs> Excuse me. he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended, higher than all the heavens, in order to fill the whole universe. Paul bases this idea of Christ ascending and descending, giving gifts on Psalm 68. I can tell you that whole PhDs have been written about how Paul uses this one verse, perhaps strangely to our way of thinking and not how you'd be taught to do in Bible college. But I don't really want to get into it too far. All we're trying to look at is see that what Paul is saying is that if Christ has ascended to heaven, it's because first he came down to earth in his incarnation. Some take that as meaning actually on the cross and descending into hell and doing <clears throat> as it describes in 1 Peter, but I think it's probably just referring to his coming to earth. He, he descended. But then when he ascended, victorious, as it tells us in chapter 1, you can flip back to verses 20, talks about God's power and mighty strength, says which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given. And then he goes on to say, talking about the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So as God raised Christ from the dead and he ascended to God in heaven, Paul uses this psalm, which is in initially about God being enthroned in Zion, to say Jesus is now being enthroned. And as he does this, as, as the victorious kings of old would do, when they were being enthroned, they would give gifts to those, to their supporters, to their people, if you like. And that's what Paul says Jesus does. As he ascends, he gives gifts to men. As I say, it's hard to work out exactly how he uses the psalm. If you want to know all the different theories, talk to me over coffee. But really, the essential thing I think Paul is getting at here is this. The risen, ascended, and victorious Christ has given gifts to each of us. And as each person, what he's going to go on to say is each person uses the gifts they've been given, whatever they are, it will build his body. So if you are sitting there saying, I'm not very gifted, you are going against what Paul is telling you here. The risen, ascended, victorious Christ has given gifts to you. And he wants you to use them in the building up of his body. And so he'll go on to develop this. Well, he starts off, uh, in verse 11, saying sometimes the gifts are actually people. Not just does he give gifts to people, he gives people as gifts 
to his church, some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. That's who he's given for the building up of his church. Now, I don't want to go into all these different roles in great detail. Some people feel that when Paul is talking about the apostles here, this is a sort of once-for-all foundational gift and that the age of the apostles is over. Same with the prophets. I think there's still a sense in which we need apostolic ministry today. By that, I don't mean the authority of Jesus' disciples, but I mean people who God especially gifts in leadership, who will be leaders of leaders for the church today. We need that for the building up of the church. Likewise, we may not have prophets who can declare, thus says the Lord, and it becomes scripture, but we need people who will prophetically guide the church. That's why you have to weigh prophecy, because it's not a black and white from scripture. It may be a word of direction, of leading, guidance. It may be a word, as Chris was sharing last week, that Aaron received. Someone saying, someone here called Aaron. We need those gifts as the church. And therefore, building up. <clears throat> I have zero a gifting in either of those, by the way. Some to be evangelists. We need those people who are specially gifted to declare the gospel to those who don't know him. And yet, Paul also tells Timothy that all of us are to do the work of an evangelist. We're all bound by duty to share and to be ready to give a defense, as, Paul, as Peter tells the church. But we need people gifted in that way. And we need shepherds and teachers, and Paul puts them together, perhaps because shepherds feed the flock, and one of the main ways of doing that is through teaching. But yes, this may be about leadership, but each of us, in some way, needs to reflect some of those gifts. So you may teach in Sunday school, but it's still a teaching gift. It doesn't have to be up here. And what the most important thing for me from this passage is it says, that these people, what is their, one of their jobs is not just to do everything and run around like headless chickens. It's to prepare the saints, God's church, that's you sitting there right now, to serve for work of service, says in the NIV, I think. To prepare, verse 12, God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. The job of the leadership is not to do everything. It's also to equip every single person to be involved in the church's ministry. So there, as someone said, church is not a spectator sport. You each have a vital role to play. It may, you may not think it's vital because it's not up front in some way, but it is, and you need to play your role. So we each have a part to play, and the work of the leaders is preparing the saints. Now you may say, well, I've done my bit, or I'm going to do this until. I'm going to do this until I go to university. I'm going to do this until I get a job. I'm going to do this until I get married, until I have kids, until I retire. There's a limit to how much I need to serve God. Well, Paul doesn't give us that option. Verse 13, we do this, we serve, we prepare, until when? Until we all reach the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Have you reached that point yet? I don't think so, neither have I. We still all have a long way to go, and we all still need to be involved. Until when? Until we all grow individually and as a community into the mature body of Christ. Are you there yet? Am I there yet? I don't think so. 
How do you judge maturity? By someone who can quote innumerable scriptures? No, by someone who is reaching the fullness of the stature of Christ. Now when I measure myself against that, I feel like an ant against a giant. We have so far to go as a body. There is no stopping in this works of service as long as we are here on earth together because at no point will we reach this. We are always called on to growth because we've never made it and we won't on this side of heaven. So we're called to play our part. We're called to work together, to grow together into maturity. It needs all of the people of God to grow the people of God. Because the alternative, as Paul goes on to say, verse 14, is to be like an infant if we don't grow. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. And it's the same way that the very first sin was committed through deceit, through scheming. And so it's not just men, as Paul will make clear in chapter 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the spiritual powers. They're the ones who work through men to deceive us. So we either grow or we stay like infants. And if we're like infants, you can be 40 years in the church and still a spiritual infant. You can be grown up in a Christian home all your life and still be spiritually immature. This is not about how long you've been in church or how many times you read the Bible. This is about you growing in maturity as, a community, is, as part of a community. And, and there's a very real danger that if we stay as infants, we will be deceived. We will be taken in by Satan. So Paul is saying, grow. Don't be as an infant. And then he gives a way to grow by speaking the truth in love. And I kind of guessed this would happen. This is a balance, if you like. He, this, for me, is one of the hardest verses to actually put into practice from this chapter. What does it mean to speak the truth in love? Because Paul says in verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. He's given us one of the key ways for us to grow as a body, this idea of speaking the truth in love. What does that mean? Well, uh, back in Spain, we were part of a community group helping lead that, and there was a, a guy who'd be, who was <coughs> a fairly new Christian, and he came up to me one day and said, Graham, I think I've worked out what people mean when they tell you, I want to tell you something in love. It means they're about to give you both barrels and tell you everything is wrong with you. I don't think that's what Paul means. Now, some of us, by nature, are very good at speaking the truth and forget about the love bit. Uh, that's probably not... I'm, I'm the other side. I tend to balance this way. I don't like conflict. I run away from it. As you can ask Natasha, she'll tell you that. And I forget a, the bit about speaking the truth. No, it's all right. Everything's fine, dear. God wants balance. And we are to speak the truth but with love. This is the second time Paul uses that phrase already, in love. What does in love mean? It means not the romantic, but the commitment to the other person's good. We want to see someone grow, so when we need to, we're going to speak the truth to them, if that means confrontation. We want to see someone grow, so when they need it, they may need a word of encouragement. We're going to speak the truth to them. What is the truth we speak? It's the whole counsel of Scripture, which Paul tells Timothy is useful for teaching, instruction, but also correcting 
and rebuking where needed. I'm terrible at that. <coughs> As I said, I don't like conflict. And for me to go up and confront someone about sin or some area they need to change is extremely difficult. And I don't know if you sitting there can think of a time where someone's done that to you. Has anyone ever dared to come up to you? Because if this is hard to do, it's even harder to receive when someone comes genuinely in love to challenge you about something. And I'm thinking of five years in Abbey. Have I done that to someone and has someone done that to me? And if not, why not? Is it because of my own fear? They won't like me. Or the fact that I'm shy anyway. If I'm not doing it, if it's not happening, genuinely speaking the truth in love, not just giving people both barrels because you're upset at them, genuinely speaking the truth in love because you want them to grow and you want them to mature in Christ, we will grow as a body. And we can't do that at a distance, which is why we do need community groups and small groups that know one another well enough to do this. Because if I know you well enough, I know what's going on in your life as to actually where you need encouragement or correcting. If all I see you is on a Sunday morning or at a nice polite Bible study on a Wednesday evening, I can't speak the truth to you in love because I don't know what's going on in your life. We do need one another and we need to be open and honest with one another. So please don't come up after the service immediately and tell me all my faults. <laughs> but where you see I need this, come and speak the truth to me in love because I need it. And let's be a community that's willing to do that for one another, however uncomfortable it might be. We are to speak the truth in love and that's how we will grow. And so Paul finishes verse 16. From him the whole body, from Christ the head, as he's just said, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now Paul and ancient medical terms are a bit complicated to understand, but what Paul seems to be saying is that the head, from the head comes nourishment, and that is to reach every part of the body through each part doing its work. That's possibly how they understood ligaments and joints working back in those days. The nourishment the love we receive from Christ, we must pass on. I don't know if you saw the, the news the other day, a British guy won the world's strongest man, which hasn't happened in many years, but they were interviewing him afterwards, and one fact that I thought interesting was that he eats 15 eggs a day. And of course, my boys were quite amazed at that. The nourishment he needs to grow and be the world's strongest man is quite incredible. And the nourishment we need as the body of Christ is nothing else but Christ's love. That's why... We build up together in love. Someone has summed up this passage as the church grows when Christ the head gives, leaders equip, and people serve. That's how the church grows. So I want to finish this morning by returning to how we started with Paul's exhortation. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling with which you've received. Amen.